Today's episode of Flying Coach on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by World Central Kitchen. Help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us and help keep your local restaurants alive. Go to theringer.com slash WCK to donate, please. If you have the means, it's an unbelievably great and useful cause that helps our hospital heroes, emergency workers, and local restaurants. Give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen. It's a charitable donation. Once again, that is theringer.com slash WCK. We started Flying Coach to raise money for the Warriors Community Foundation and the Seahawks Charitable Foundation. But as a thank you to all the frontline workers for COVID-19, Pete Carroll and his company, Compete to Create, are offering a free online course in a high-performance mindset coincidentally called Warrior's Edge. You can find it by going to his website at competetocreate.net backslash Warrior's Edge. It will be available for free for anyone working with COVID-19. Through the end of 2020 in general, the course is an incredible insider look into Pete's philosophy, culture, and leadership. A lot of the stuff we talk about on this podcast Coming up, Steve Kerr, Pete Carroll, they're going to talk to Dodgers manager, Dave Roberts. I don't even know if it's legal to have three coaches from three different sports in the same podcast, but we tried it right now. Here it is, Flying Coach. All right, Flying Coach podcast. Steve Kerr and Pete Carroll, and uh, got a special guest today. Dave Roberts is going to join us. Pete, you remember week one, you said to me, you know what we got to do? Got to get a, a baseball coach, football coach, and a basketball coach on one podcast. So here we are. We did it. I know. This is great. I, I'm, I'm, I'm great, but I think this is, uh, this is a pretty unique situation. I'm fired up about it. Being an all sports guy myself, so I'm I'm loving that we're we have a shot to do. It. We got to figure out how to make some sense of this for everybody if they uh, as they listen. Well, we got to play a damn game here at some point too. <laughs> one one really? of us, but uh, Dave, thanks for coming on, man. This is great to have you. Uh, big fan. Uh, been admiring your work from afar, and and uh, really excited to to chat with you today. No, it's great, and um, I heard about the podcast, so you know it. This is, uh, it takes, uh, uh, I guess, a pandemic to get us all three <laughs> really? in, in the same space because, you know, we admire each other and I've watched you guys for so many years, and but it just seems like our paths, we keep missing each other because of drafts and our season. And so uh, this is, this is going to be good to kind of spend some time with you guys. Well, there, there are a few connections. Um, Pete, I don't know if you know this, but uh, one of our owners with the Warriors, uh, Peter Goober, also uh part owner of the Dodgers. So uh, that's where Dave and I actually met. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Peter Goober uh, introduced the two of us uh, several years ago. So I've had a chance to to visit Dave in the clubhouse at Dodger Stadium. He's come up to Oracle oh, and come into the coach's office, which was fun. And then, uh, of course, you got your LA connection, having coached at USC for all those years and Dave being a Bruin. So we got uh, got a big LA connection here. Get that out of the way. Get it out of the way. <laughs> You had to tell. I think it was the first broadcast. It was the first broadcast. Dave, Dave, he tells me that you know he's got to let me know that he's a Bruin fan from all, all the way back in the, in the day. So, so we, you guys are. It's okay. We I love meeting guys from UCLA. That's right. That's right. So a couple things uh, with, with that, Steve, and um, and and I'm sure we can get into this too. But yeah, Peter Goober, uh, one of the owners for the Dodgers, and his uh, Mandalay Production Company has done a great job with that Last Dance, and so oh, yeah. That that obviously that's been the talk of sports, you know. Watching watching Michael and obviously with you, Steve. And um, I got a funny USC UCLA story. So 
obviously we we know uh, Pete's background and me being a former Bruin myself. So there was a point in time when I pr- played for the Giants, and um, I was old club. There you go. Fortunate enough to uh, have our equipment manager at UCLA send me down a Bruin helmet. So one of these games, Pete was at you know was sitting behind the third base dugout. I don't know. And um, I came out of the game (laughs) and we had a good lead. So I I felt a little levity (laughs) comedy was okay. And so I went into the clubhouse, grabbed my helmet, my football helmet, come back into the dugout. Pete's, you know, five rows behind the dugout. And then I had to rock my (laughs) UCLA helmet. So uh, I thought it was funny because uh, Pete uh, took it the way it was meant. So we had, we've always had our banter back and forth. So Dave, you put the the football helmet on your head and looked up at Pete. So we're in probably the seventh, eighth inning. So suffice to say, I'm probably the only major league player that has ever worn a football helmet in the dugout during a, during a game, during a big league ball game. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. It was it was well worth it. It was well worth it. I That's awesome. It. That's awesome. Well, we we share that strong LA bond. I know that. I grew up there and and uh you know, one of one of my uh favorite memories from my childhood was going to Dodger Stadium. My dad used to take my brother and me. Uh we'd sit in the left field bleachers and uh so I've been a Dodger fan since uh Really, since I was about five years old, I I would not admit it though. In in the Bay, until we actually won a championship, you know, once the Warriors won a championship, then I felt comfortable saying, "Hey, I like the Dodgers." All right, <laughs> you had to earn it. Okay, timing <laughs> is everything. Absolutely, that's right. Well, yeah, hey guys, I grew up as an I mean, absolute Giants fan. You know, I grew up with Willie Mays, man. I mean, it was like he to me is still my favorite guy in sports ever, you know, and just as a little kid watching that guy play and, you know, growing up in just across from San Francisco and all that. So, uh, same thing, sitting in left field, you know, out, out there in the cheap seats, you know, and with the buddies as right, growing older, you know, and just those experiences and, uh, it, the whole baseball thing for me really was all about the giants. So there's, there's a lot of crossovers. It's pretty, no, fun. there is. And I'll tell you, this is that one thing that, you know, and, you know, as we look back on our childhoods or when we were growing up and whether it's football, basketball, or baseball. And I think that we're all three of the mind of continuing to evolve and grow and get better. And, uh, but I will say this though, is that when you talk about Willie Mays with the giants or, you know, players in, in uh, football that were, you know, that were Niners or they were giants and like LT and to see players now changing teams it's just different because when yeah. we knew sports yeah. we identified not only with the players but these Willie Mays was a giant and yeah. I think that's the fun part where nowadays you can kind of see it evolve into players loving fan uh you know fans loving players yeah, yeah. yeah there was a big connection it was really it was it was really meaningful it was your that was kind of your your makeup as a kid to me you know it was being a Giants fan being a Niners fan all that was it was in the Warriors fans too and we grew up that was the way we did it you know and and uh it was great because the same players stayed, like you said, and it was a big deal. It was really. I important. remember a story with uh, Maury Wills. He was my mentor when I was with the Dodgers and when I was a player. Base stealer. And so yeah, that's right. Uh, MVP in 1962, and he told me this story on the backfield at uh, Dodger Town back in 2002. And he was like, "Doc, let me tell you something, man." He's like, "If Willie Mays, if that guy was on the side of the street and his car was broke down." 
I would ride right by and wouldn't think <laughs> twice about him, you know, and it's just that there's no love lost, but there's certainly respect. And he would tell stories about when they would go and play the giants, they would wet down first oh, yeah. base so he couldn't <laughs> steal. And so sure. those are the fun things that I love to hear. And uh, Don Newcomb would share those same stories and, Kofax, who's around once in a while. So for me, just like you guys are fans and students of our particular sports and all sports, just hearing those stories is always great. Yeah, yeah it's so yeah. it's so fun. It's such great stuff. And you know, there's a, a million ways we could go uh, with this conversation, but you know, we're kind of on this uh, this topic of uh, multi-sport athletes, or at least as kids, you know, the three of us yeah. all, it was a different era, right? We just played whatever was in season and then you moved on to the next one. And, uh, I, I'm interested, Dave and Pete and I have talked about this a little bit. Uh, we're now in an age of specialization where so many of our athletes, so many of the guys who are playing in our respective sports have kind of locked in on that one sport. And yet there still seems to be something special about the kid who played multiple sports and that there's some crossover that can actually help you become better in one sport by playing a different sport. Uh, is that, does that something that you think about in baseball when you, when you develop a player or draft a player? You know what? Uh, we think about it quite often. And I think that I was a guy that I played three sports. I played whatever was in season. And I do think that it's interesting. There's, there's, there's numerous layers where, you know, on one side, you see the specialization, and I would argue that these players that, you know, play baseball year-round, the travel ball, I think skill set-wise, they're, they're probably better. Um, but a lot of times in our industry, is, I, I call them showcase players, to be quite honest, because, you know, it looks good on paper, the arm strength, the power, um, you know, the, the speed, but it's like when you need to get a run in with the infield back in the eighth inning, can you put the ball in play and can you move it forward and not punch out? And the, the five o'clock hitters that can hit the ball 500 feet are great, but if you can't take the slider down below the zone, then it's not going to help you win a baseball game. So I think that when you're playing to showcase and not really playing to help your team win, which you guys, just like me, we grew up in Little League and it's about team and, and that kind of DNA, I think that we're missing. And I think that I'm probably a little bit broader, maybe a little bit unfairly, but that's kind of the way I see it. Um, you know, it's interesting. So for us to get, and I talk to our team president all the time about getting players that potentially play multiple sports and specifically quarterback. I was a quarterback sure. in high school and I just love the guys that play baseball, but if they could play quarterback for me, that's that intangible thing that you know, in, in baseball, there's five tools, but that sixth thing where people say, can he play? But if you can have another box for me, if he played quarterback, then he has feel, he has awareness, he's an unselfish, he's a team player and he's got aptitude. So I like that. So it, it's interesting. And for you guys, it'd be interesting to hear your guys' thoughts too. Yeah. I think you guys would be surprised that like, and my coaches know this, that when we do our interviews with the players at the combine or whenever we have guys visit or whenever I talk about you know, trying to figure out who the guys are. The first thing I ask them is what other sports did you play in school? And I want to know, it, it, you know, what kind of a player they were in that sport, you know? So I'll say, well, you know, what position did you play? And, uh, and you know, that, I'm looking for shortstops. I'm looking for guys that play down the middle. I'm looking for the pitchers. I'm, you know, and uh, if the guy played right field in little league, you know, okay, that tells me those big guys, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, 
but it, it, it goes to the, that general awareness that you develop, which each sport has its unique ways about it, but they all fit together in some sense when it comes down to making the plays you got to make. And when it's time to, are you going to take the big turn or you're going for it? You know, <laughs> you know, how are you going to do it? You know, and uh, th- there's so much to that. And it, it allows me to paint a picture of what kind of a person this guy has become through his background, through his experiences. It's hugely important to me. So uh, I, I, it's, it always will be. I, I think I can find more information out of that by tracking the guy's sports background than almost anything. Pete, didn't Russell Wilson get drafted um, by Major League Baseball? Yeah, he's been drafted, I think, a couple times, hasn't he? Might have been by Houston or something like that. Uh, he continues to go back to camps. He loves baseball. You know, he was yeah. – Dave, you, you, do you know much about his his makeup or background? I, I don't know a whole lot. Um, I love the player, love the guy, and he actually lives down the road from me um, up the freeway. But – I do recall meeting him in spring training when he was with the Rangers. And, and I think yeah. he went back a couple times. And I, was, I think I was a coach with the Padres at that time and saw him take batting practice, saw him take some grounders. Oh, and yeah. One yeah. of my favorite teammates of all time was Adrian Beltre. So uh, they had a nice little bond. But to see, uh, you know, Russell on the baseball field was, was pretty interesting. Yeah, he's worked out with the Yankees in the last couple of years at times in camp. Go spend a couple of days, you know, and then they let him come on back. And he, he was a second baseman. And uh, it, it it shows up all the time. It shows up all the time in, his, in the things that he chooses. He's such an extraordinary athlete, probably as close to a football, baseball guy as anybody, you know, and, and uh, it's really part of his makeup. You guys are probably not going to be surprised to learn that Steph Curry uh, was a hell of a baseball player in high school. Is that right? Yeah. And one of those guys who, you Makes know, sense. you hand him a golf club, you scratch, you know, you, sure. you, you hand him whatever, whatever ball, he's going to be really good. Uh, but I remember a few years ago, we we had a practice uh, during Super Bowl week, and I think our guys were tired. And instead of instead of having a normal practice, we ended up bringing throwing the football around, having a, some competition where you know guys had to partner with one player and do patterns and run through our facility and you know complete passes to different spots. And I always kind of you know I knew Steph and Clay were great athletes. But to watch them throw the football was incredible. They both have absolute cannons. And then the other guy who can throw a football about 75 yards, a guy named Mo Spates, uh, Maurice Spates, who and 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 here's the uh here's the thing that ties it all together. They were our three best shooters, too. So yeah. I, I remember thinking to myself after I watched that, and we all it was just for fun. And you know, we we just had a good day. It was one of those kind of, you know blow off days where you, know, you just need to blow off some steam. But I remember thinking, you know, should we be looking for guys who can, who played quarterback or played shortstop or, or to your point, Pete, to, to, who pitched, um, is, a, is having a great arm somehow connected to uh, also being a great shooter? Is it, is it connected to hand-eye? I, I don't know the answer, but I know it, it fit exactly on, on our team. Yeah, there, there's no doubt to me. I, I, I totally think it fits together. I, I've seen connections for years and years. And if a guy is not a basketball player, but he's a track athlete and a, and a football player, that tells me a whole lot about his hand-eye coordination, his sense, his spatial awareness, all those types of things. Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, and I never even thought about that. That's interesting, uh, Steve, where 
I can, you know, as a former quarterback, I can throw a football. I can't throw it, you know, 70 yards like Spacey can, but I, I can spin the football. And it's kind of like basketball or football. It's like, you know, we talked about Russ earlier. It's like he can spin the football and he yeah. can spin the ball. And it's like that's that, you know, being able to repeat that throw. And so now it's kind of like when you shoot a basketball to get the right spin and to be consistent with your stroke. So yeah. that's that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, Dave, we're only talking about the most accurate guy ever shooting a hoop. So, right, <laughs> Steve, right exactly, no, right. Pretty amazing. So, uh, I bet, and he was, he, Steve, you told us, I think, last time about, about pitching in Dodger Stadium or something, too. So, that's a, it's a perfect yeah, connection. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. That was so much fun. I, uh, Dave, I don't know if, if, uh, if I ever told you this. I pitched in Dodger Stadium my uh, junior and senior year of high school. We made the city finals and uh, we lost both times. Uh, my junior year, we lost 13 nothing. And then the other pitcher threw a no hitter, guy oh, by goodness. the name of uh, Brett Saberhagen. Oh, oh wow! Well, That's he turned out to be a pretty man. good ball player. He was okay. He was okay. But <laughs> un- unfortunately, I I, I was uh, the pitcher. I was I came out of the bullpen and got shelled in about the second or third inning. But what a what a thrill uh, to play in Dodger Stadium and and uh, yeah, it's a different time, you know. Now, I mean, back then we didn't even have the option really to focus on one sport all year long, unless you did it on your own. You know, back then it was just, all right, season's over. You move on to the next sport and you just go. Yeah. And you kind of catch up with everybody, uh, you know, as they get, they're already getting started playing basketball and you kind of get in a basketball shape and then, you know, the baseball players are playing and then you're trying to get out there and take swings. But the thing that's really that I think that we understand is that those sports or any sport that you play gives you a different skill set. And physically, mentally, that help yeah. you in whatever sport you ultimately land in. And I think that to the Steph, to the Russell, it's like, you know, baseball that I can speak to is it's a game of failure, you know, that we talk about three out of 10 times you fail and you're a success. So it, there's nothing in life we can do to fail seven out of 10 times and we're a success. So <laughs> yeah. to do that and to punch out with the base load and then go out there to deal with your position and have to make a play defensively, it's not easy. And, and so, but I think that that grit certainly helps players in other sports too. Uh, that presents its own challenge as a manager. And I think that's one of the most uh, interesting things about this conversation is that, you know, obviously all three of us are trying to accomplish the same thing. We're just trying to help our players become the best players they can be and in turn uh, help our team win games. But the sports themselves are so different. You know, Pete's team spends all week preparing for one game, you know, hours and hours of game planning. You know, you guys have a game every day. We're kind of in between, you know, game every other day. Uh, but I'm, I'm interested, Dave, in, in you, the communication you have with your players. When you have a game every single day and there's 162 of them, how do you handle that interaction with your team? How can you make that impact that you need to make without being overbearing at the same time? Well, it, it's interesting is, and I think that we've all lived this where you get into coaching because you, you love the game. There's a passion you want. You have the uh, desire to teach. Um, but as a major league manager, um, you, your scope obviously broadens and there's front office, there's media, there's ownership, and obviously the coaches, training staff, and then the players. And the players are always most important, but your time is certainly more limited. So it's ironic that as you kind of work your way up the ladder, it, you get less and less time with 
of what got you and what got you initially into coaching and what you love to do, and that's connect with players. So to that question, I try to make a point every single day uh, to touch base with every single player. And I, fortunately, I don't have to worry about you know, 50, 60 players like Pete does, but I think that I talk to, touch, check in on every single day. And I think for the most part, it's kind of the bench players or the role players or the relief pitchers because the starting pitchers, starting five, the position players that essentially play every day, those guys really are kind of turnkey. Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, Justin Turner, Cody Bellinger, but it's the guys that are in the pen that really don't, that want to make sure that you love on them. They know their role. Guys that don't play, you want to give them a heads up and tell them you still value them. So I do touch base with everybody, but I really have a keen uh, sense of those guys. I want to make sure they stay relevant and on board. Well, you were that guy, right? For I mean, as a player, that was your role too. Right. I was, you know, I went from a young player to then I had, you know, five years where I was a starter. Then it goes the other way. You're you're on the other side, you're on the outside looking in. So to have Bruce Bochy, who's going to be a hall of fame manager to say, Hey doc, I got you in there in a couple of days. Just stay ready. I'm trying to get you some at bats, um, be ready to pick Barry up when he needs it. Um, but you know, that just that bit right there makes me feel like I'm a part of things. And, um, for him to not shun me because I wasn't a starter or, Terry Francona, when I wasn't a starter uh, coming off the bench uh, in 04 with the Red Sox, saying, hey, man, I know your value. You came from the Dodgers in a trade from a first-place team. You were a starter. This is not the situation right now, but I value you. I'm going to use you. Um, And that right there, that communication, which you guys do so well, meant the world to me. You know, Steve, that one of the things that really connects it with what Dave's saying here is when when you're in college and you have 110 players on your team, and and it was always important to me and this is, I think we had the same thought about this, uh, Dave, is that to, to, during stretch lines, you know, when we're stretched, we get to take 10 minutes to stretch, get the team stretched out. I always wanted to connect with the guys that were at the back of the lines, which were the, the, the walk-on kids. And with the thought that the guys that are playing, they don't, they don't need as much love <laughs> in connection, but it's the guys who have to just keep going out there and grinding it, and they're doing it because of the love of the game, and they're just, they may never play, you know, and all that. That those were the ones that I felt like if, if we made that effort, to keep them connected and feeling a part of and and uh, and whatever the role that we could build with those guys, it, it really was meaningful. And it was meaningful to me that I would not ignore those guys, you know, and I didn't want to, uh, that was the last thing I wanted to do. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a, a real common sense. You know, and this, you get down, Steve's got like 12 to 15 guys on his team. He goes even smaller. He gets to love them up every day, which uh, I, mean, I, I would, I would really, I would really love to have that relationship, you know, where you could be that close, that connected that often. Yeah, it's a huge advantage to to have fewer players. It's easier to communicate, and and I'm the same way with you guys as you guys in terms of um, really trying to stay connected uh, down at the end of the bench. And and I played that role most of my career, where I was you know eighth, ninth, tenth, twelfth man, not playing for a couple games, and and it was just so important to hear from my coach to know that I actually mattered on the team. And so that's always been a focus. And I think it's uh, maybe people don't realize how important those guys are for the overall morale of the team, you know, because if you got the guys on the end of your bench fully engaged and invested and they're all fired up and, and they're cheering on everybody else and it just becomes contagious and it's, it's not as easy as it sounds because, you know, everybody's jobs are on the line. And uh, Dave, I've I've watched you guys. You've probably platooned 
more players. I don't know if that I would say that any team I've seen in the in the big leagues the last few years, that's got to be a juggling act. It is. It is. And and I think that, you know, it's it kind of goes back to, you know, where we were talking about specialization. And I think that, you know, with baseball where you have, you know, starters, you have a guy that you know, right-handed specialist, left-handed specialist, you know, we platoon guys. And I think that, you know, obviously our jobs is to, you know, you're sensitive to the players, their emotion. Everyone thinks that they're the best option, but our job is the best interest of the ball club uh, collectively. And I think that for me, day one, that's the message. And every single day, you know, every player is supposed to believe they can hit righties, hit lefties. And that's what you want from your players and to not be happy when they're sitting the bench and not getting a start. I get it. And I understand that. That's what I want. Um, but I do believe that we've shown the consistency of using our entire roster. So, you know, whether you start a game, uh, you might come into a big spot in the sixth inning and finish out the last four innings, and you might make the difference in the game. And I think that now with, with all of our sports, you're talking about workload and uh, you're, you're on the margins trying to give players and your team ultimately the best chance for success. So at any moment, I just feel like we have the depth that we can plug somebody in that gives us uh, an advantage. And however yeah. it plays out, we don't know. But I think that when you do play 162 games, that ultimately that's the way uh, it'll, it'll end up ultimately the way you kind of forecast it. Yeah. And our guys have looked back over the last five years and said, hey, you know what? I am valued. I'm not getting 600 plate appearances, but my 525 and spread out and I'm a team guy. This guy's taking 75. This guy's taking 75 being ready when called upon, um, it's, I think it's made our ball club better. And again, when you're talking about 162 playing through October, you got you need your whole roster. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you feel it? Like uh, when you're dealing with the guys that, that there's just time, sometimes, you know, you watch a guy, you watch him handling the disappointment of not playing as much or the frustration of it. Do you find that at times you'll play guys just because you know, they need it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that too. You know, you have to find, find your way to, to keep them because we got to keep nurturing their mentality as best we can so they can stay strong and be ready and alert and ready for the, the opportunities and all. Yeah. So I've had a, a chance to watch Pete at work. He, he's been great to invite me a couple times to Seattle and, with 53 guys on the roster and another five or six on the practice squad, it, it, I, I almost look at Pete as, as like a butterfly. He's just floating from one group to, to the next and just trying to hit on, on every group. But, but Pete, one thing I've, I've never asked you, out of the 53 guys, is everybody pretty much playing because of special teams? Or, or are there guys on your team who don't get any snaps? Yeah, no. Rarely are there, there are guys that don't play week in, week out. You know, everybody's they have some role. You know, if uh, you know, we will play basically with eight offensive linemen, give or take. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends on the game. But uh, those guys, the backups generally don't play, but they play on some special teams. You know, they get in on field goal mm -hmm. stuff, and you know, but they're always on the ready. But for the most part, everybody goes uh, because of the special teams aspect of it. And if a guy can't play on special teams and he's just sitting on the roster or sitting on the bench, they, there's not many of those guys because we need yeah. everybody. 
How do you manage to stay connected with so many human beings, not to mention all your coaches, because you don't just manage your players, you manage your coaches, you manage your staff. There are so many people in that room. So how do you how do you manage that? It's amazing. Well, just try to keep bouncing. Just like you said, it's kind of like being the butterfly. You know, you, you just keep bouncing around and use all yeah. the opportunities. Some of the the moments, it's really in moments. It's like as you're waiting to go in the meeting room or the, another part of the segment of the team is in there and you're in the hallway. Those are important exchanges, yeah. you know, and and find guys in the lunchroom, uh, you know, it, in the stress lines and, and just the in-between moments that we capture uh, are really crucial. You know, I know that it probably doesn't always make the guy feel great, but I'm feeling like I'm working at it, you know, and I'm trying yeah. to keep that relationship going because you need to love these guys up, you know, and because you don't in an instant, we need them to win the freaking game, you know, and right, so we want right. them right and primed. And so, uh, yeah, it's, an, it's just an ongoing process to try to keep nurturing and, and, you know, keep the connection. Yeah. You know what? And also I was going to say is, um, it's interesting. It's like one of the things that I can see from from both you guys that you know we can't have a bad day, and I think that you know being you know relentlessly positive, I think is very powerful. And you know, Steve, yourself, and Pete, you know, running around from group to group, and with that energy, it's like that's what players look to. And and we've we've played and we know the grind and how difficult it is, but to see you know, the guy that's kind of running the ship, being positive and showing energy. You know, I had one of the biggest compliments I had was Justin Turner said that, you know, if I see Dave Roberts, our manager, um, positive every single day, then, then I can't let him down. That's the way I have to be. And, you know, and it's like, that's what you, you expect from yourself, your coaching staff, because, you know, it, it's tough. And the way I kind of manage things is when things go well, I sort of back off when things are going well, I push them and I get on them because I don't want the fear of complacency. But when things are going bad and, you know, we're losing five or six, that's when I kind of pick them up, pat them on the butt, say, Hey man, keep going. And let's, let's keep trusting the process. Yeah. <laughs> how, how have you uh, been able to kind of blend in the, the whole analytics side? Because in, in all of our sports, um, Everything's changed with uh, the addition of analytic staffs and and so much more information that's coming our way, and I'm sure baseball is is it's had the biggest impact of any sport. Uh, but I'm really interested in in the process, Dave, in which you receive information, how you use it, um, how how it gets to the players, and 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 going from there. I think the the, the thing that first off is some of the best people that I've learned from have been outside of my industry and, and sports. And so now if you look at it from that lens and understanding that all industries value and need information to continue to get better, to grow. And, and, and I think that baseball should be no different and sports should be no different. And yeah. I think that with baseball in particular, we've always been about statistics, but God, when I was playing, I knew analytics in the sense of this guy likes to throw a, a heater up and in with two strikes or Kurt Schilling when, when he doesn't throw his split unless he gets to two strikes. So Mariano Rivera, he doesn't throw over more than two times. You know, those are things that now we can quantify. Um, but there, it's always been there. You know, Pete can talk to Willie Mays and say, yeah, I know that I hit better right-handed than left-handed or whatever. And then those are things that the managers now have. And, and now with social media, people, fans, media are more uh, 
uh, they have this access to this information now. You know, I think for me, it's just being open to it and how the coaches certainly have to have the buy-in to then disseminate to the players. But yeah, Steve, it, it's it was tough early, but I think that our guys are starting to soften. And when you get not only great players, but smart players, they start to, they can understand it better too. How about you, Pete? How, how do analytics factor into your? Well, we're, you know, we're trying to be at the cutting edge of it. We want to know everything that there is to know. And I'm, I'm fine about all of the information coming to me and, and, and we have our ways to interpret it to kind of make sense of it. Cause there's so much stuff that you could go, go with. But I do think that, that it comes to the point where you, it's like any situation or any decision I have to make. I want all the information laid out in front of me, and then I'm going to go for what feels right, you know. And and so, uh, but I I trust the analytics and I trust the numbers to to inform us. But then there's still that there's still that next step, you know. It isn't just about the mechanics of that. And I would think, Dave, you guys have so much stuff, and so you know, with every pitch and every you know every position on the field and all that stuff, our our stuff. Uh, it comes down to for me. Uh, I'll have four or five situations in a game when when the real analytics that, that come to me, where the decision is going to be based on should we or should we not. You know, I love those situations. I mean, that's that's what we coach for. You know, if we get <laughs> you get to do something, you know, because otherwise I'm watching the game and cheerleading and having fun. You know, chewing the gum and all that. But uh, <laughs> it, that, that, but the information it, and I want the information to come on a regular flowing basis, not just boom. Okay, you should do this. You know, I want I want to have. The buildup uh, of of the accumulation of the numbers and how they fit to situations, so that there can be a strategy to to utilize the the, the information that you get. You're Pete, do you have, did you have a guy who's who's standing next to you or somebody in your ear where you know, let's say there's a I don't know, you know, fourth and three, if you're midfield and you're down nine points or something, and you know, it's one of those ones where you're going for it. Yeah, well, Pete's I know going Pete's for going it. for it. I know, but if we're sitting in the stand, Dave, you and I are sitting in the stands, and you say, "Ah, you got to punt it here and trust your defense," and I go, "No, I think you got to go for it." Obviously, somebody in your organization, Pete, has said, "It's you know, if we go for it, we have a fifty-three point seven percent chance of winning, or whatever the number is." Do you have somebody with you all the time, constantly sharing that? uh, No, I don't. I don't have him on on the headphones with me, but I'm prepared throughout the time to, to look for the opportunities and the situations. And my guy that, that I lean on the most, uh, Brian Ayers, he'll, you know, he'll get to me a, a message if I need it during the game, what's going on, if the, the yeah. numbers or the stats are something that are important to us. But we've basically done the work ahead of time so that the game can flow and we're not, we're not back and forth with it. Right. Because I pretty much know how, I, how we want to go. We want to be as aggressive as we can. We want to go for it whenever the opportunities are. You were right, Dave. Particularly back in the days at SC when we were really good, we'd go for it all the time because you, <laughs> you guys were going to make it. You know, they're going to yeah. come through. Well, the, the league's a little more evened out, so there's, there's more decisions like that. But Steve, I would ask you that, like, Say like uh, uh, when you have to make a decision, like that, whether you're taking a foul or not, and the clock's winding down. And there's 13, 14 seconds left. Do we, you know, how many? Ex- or say it's like 30 seconds. How many do we want to go with the next opportunity? You know, for possession and stuff like that. I mean, you don't have time to look. To, I don't think. I mean, you've already right. prepared yourself for that. I think because, and, and you have to play the game too. So I think as much as the analytics are available to us and they they help us in so many ways, we still have to play the game and and play the right. situation and play the people. In the game too, you know, Russell Wilson will—he'll defy those darn numbers so many, so many times. Yeah. You know, if you just keep yeah. getting chances, he's going to turn a game around. You know, but you got to keep giving him the chance and keep putting him out there. And, and uh, so, 
I think it's just, it's a blend. We have to blend the stuff. But I have, sure. it's always there when I need it. And, you know, we have our guys with their charts and stuff like yeah. that that are always, I have different guys that I go to for the different situations. I think the biggest thing in, in basketball right now is, uh, as far as analytics are concerned, is the shot chart. You know, everybody now is trying to avoid the mid-range shot, take more threes, more paint shots, more free throws. Uh, and, and so we we have, that's the kind of information we're getting um, and we we see each individual player's shot patterns, and and then it's up to us to figure out what what all that means and what we want, right? And and so then we've got to, to communicate to our players, hey, you know what? If Steph Curry wants to shoot a fifteen footer, he gets to shoot a fifteen footer, right? Because he's the best shooter in the world. So go ahead, shoot whatever shot you want, Steph. You know, but if it's you know. You guys over here, you know, here are your percentages and, you know, <laughs> yeah. and so Which how do you, you communicate yeah. that, right? It's it's tough because you don't want to tell a guy, hey, you're not that great of a shooter. But so the, it's the way you present it. You present it with video. And the, and the way we try to do it is is to remind our guys that, you know, in basketball, ball movement, the ball always moves faster than the defense, right? And so if you can, if you got 12 seconds on the shot clock, you're – and you got a 15 footer, but you got a guy all over you. Put it on the floor one time, move it on, let the next guy make the play, and and use that shot clock to try to get a better shot. And those things are all uh, quantifiable, right? And and sure. it's up to, it's up to us to try to figure out you know how to how to use them. But I think what's most interesting to me is it, we're now entering the age, and I know this is true in baseball, where uh, in basketball too, where analytics are really entering the player development side. You know, I mean, I read Moneyball uh, by Michael Lewis. I, it was, it was amazing, but like it's, the, we're now beyond, everybody knows working the count is great because you get to the bullpen faster or, you know, you, uh, a walk is this, you know, a guy on base and you don't want to, you don't want to steal too much and get thrown out. We're like, we've, we figured all that stuff out, but now I'm reading about how player development is um, being, or how analytics are being used for player development. Can you talk about that a little bit, Dave? Yeah, well, I, I think that it's 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 starting earlier, and I think that's a good thing as far as uh, young players are being exposed to it at an earlier age, where you get guys that are already on major league rosters that, you know, I mentioned Justin Turner, Clayton Kershaw, who are, you know, all-stars every year, so now this stuff that's being introduced, those sometimes can be the most resistant because they've had great success without it, right? So now when you get these younger generation that are open to it at an, or exposed to it at an earlier age, they understand the language. But I think to what Pete said, which is something that us as coaches always got to be mindful of is the gut, the eyes, the heartbeat of the player um, certainly always uh, has and will matter. So it's like, and I think that even now you see players in bullpen sessions where you've got these cameras and looking at spin and release point and what the characteristics of the baseball is doing. And you've got guys in the hitting cage and you got cameras and computers that are saying exit velocity, the angle of the baseball coming off where these guys sometimes have a tendency to go to these analysts instead of talking to the coaches. And it's like, wait a minute here, I get the end result. But your mechanics, when you're pitching, your delivery certainly matters, which reflect these numbers. Now, let's not forget this. And also, just trying to hit the ball at 18 degrees and hit it 110 miles off the bat, you know, you got to still stay connected to the ground. 
you know, your elbows got to be in there. You can't be casting. So there's other things. And also now you're not, can't forget about the compete. What's he trying to do to you? You know, you got to go out there and put all that stuff out, block that noise out and still be a competitor at the end of the day. So as a coach, that's what I kind of have to manage as well. Yeah. Hey, hey, something, let me ask you guys this one. Uh, we have a concept that we use. Uh, we, we refer to it as player's mind. And uh, we're trying to, in all of our teaching and all of our coaching, we're trying to get the, the guy to get in the frame of mind where he's just playing the game. And I think it goes to exactly what you're talking about, as I interpreted, David, that you know, I, I, the player's mind to me is the reactive, responsive, natural, uh, you know, in the game, in, not in the stats, not in the numbers, not in the score, not in the, the standings, not in the stats from whatever, and get them out of that. We can coach them so much that they're thinking about so many things that you can't flow and freely play yeah. like we were capable of playing. So, so I think that is that's that's part of our art is to is to help these guys use the information, uh, find the, the the frame of mind that allows that to have a place. But yet we, I, I mean, I'm asking you guys, do, are you in tune with that thought that you got to get your guys to that? natural instinctive modality so that they can function like you know where they can really go with their best is, is that is that is, that's how i talk do you guys does that make sense to you guys yeah no doubt i mean it's uh you know that mind body connection and pete i know you and i have talked about the uh the inner game of tennis the the great book uh, by tim galloway that 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 we've both referred to many times uh, just you know trying to find that that zone that that sweet spot where we can get our players to compete without thinking, right? Your body and your mind mm -hmm. are just connected. Um, but that's, that's kind of the secret, right? Like that's, that's what everybody is trying to reach. And, and um, I would think Dave, especially in baseball, you talked about earlier in the, in the podcast, I mean, seven out of 10 times, the best players in the, in the game are failing. So how do you keep that flow and that, that freedom of thought and freedom of, of, of the beauty of just competing without letting all those stats and numbers weigh on you when you're getting out, you know, seven, eight times out of 10. I think that, I think it, it applies, you know, essentially to everything. Uh, and this is the way I try to live. And, you know, I've learned as a, as a manager, you know, the criticism, the scrutiny, um, you know, what you're under every single night. And I think for me, it's, living in the present. And I think that, you know, where you have failures that at times bleed into the, to the next at bat, the next game, um, you have successes sometimes that leads to complacency, or you want to try to do, get more, you know, you hit a homer and I want to hit a, you hit a homer 400 feet. I want to hit a homer 500 feet this time. And then you get long in your swing and you pop it up and you're throwing your bat down the first baseline. Um, so I think that, and thinking about winning a World Series, we've lost two World Series in f four years, but you can't win the World Series in February or March or right now we're in May. Um, so I think that for us to kind of, you know, what I tell our guys is whatever we're going to, whatever we can collectively to win one baseball game. And that's all we care about. And whether you start, you're on the staff, uh, your strength and condition, I don't care what you do. That's the only thing we care about. And so being in the present, I think, and that's pitch to pitch. That's And it's easier just to kind of manage it, to dominate that one moment than it is to kind of have that baggage of the past uh, with you. Yeah, hey, Steve, you know, one of the things about baseball that it's so fantastic, incredibly unique about baseball is you're just one pitch away. 
just that next pitch. You could be going, you might have gone 0 for 12, but that next pitch, you knock the hell out of it and it feels so sweet and the whole world shifts and, and you could be back just based on that one instant. Same thing with throwing the pitch and winning, you know. I, I love that about baseball because it just comes down to that next swing. And that, that, is to me is the positive. It's the optimism. It's the it's always just one swing away from you. You're back on again, and, and we can talk ourselves into and out of slumps and all kinds of stuff if we, you know, which has to happen. And that that one pitch could be so much. It's not quite like that in football to me. Is that football doesn't seem the same? And I don't I don't even know. I don't. Do you think basketball is Steve? Steve? Because I would think maybe not. It's not quite the same. But yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel, Pete. But I always thought like there's nothing as pleasing as crushing a baseball. Like, I know. Like I know. that There's feeling no, of, no. of like yeah. you get the barrel on the bat, you know, and, and you 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 make that contact and the feeling, the rush you get when that ball sails out and you're running the bases. Man, fun yeah. stuff. Fun yeah. stuff. It, it's great. It, it's great. And, yeah. and I think that that's what's interesting is about, you know, our sports and, you know, you're playing 82 games, you're playing 16, you're playing 162. And, there's just different things that it would be hard pressed for any one of our athletes to try to go out there and play, let alone dominate and get through one of those seasons. And there's just so many things. And I just love hearing your guys' perspective. Um, because one thing that I I've always admired about you guys is you always make it about the players and, um, that, that sure, that sure, uh, you know, shows through. Well, appreciate it. And I think that. Hey, can I, I hit you guys one thing? I don't know if you're wrapping up or not, Steve, but I wanted to ask you guys this question. Yeah. In, in baseball, you play 162, you play 82 in, in basketball, and we play 16. It, I've often thought that our games, uh, if we lose a game, it's like you, like for Dave, like you lost 10 in a row. And then you win a game, and it's like you won 10 in a row. Because it's, you know, when you add it up, and, and it's, it's just, it's so hard to imagine any. What it would be like to swing your season? Okay, one ten. Oh, we got beat the next week. We lost. <laughs> we lost ten games. Our game seems so. It's so condensed in the focus. Uh, and I don't know if that's why it's you know it is what it is. But it's just so different in that regard because you get to come back and, and rejuvenate and relive and, and come back to life so much quicker than we get to it. I admire that you guys get that one. Or maybe I envy it more. Is what I should say. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think that baseball in many ways has to be really difficult because the game can swing so easily. There's such a small margin of difference, right? Yeah. You, it doesn't, if you have the best record in baseball, Dave, and you play the team with the worst record in baseball, you could lose easily. You know, pitcher pitches a great game. Uh, they make a couple plays. Like it, it's not really an upset. It's just, it just happens, and so that, that's the thing that I think would be the hardest is, uh, and you've and you felt it. You know, you've had an incredible run. You've had all these great teams. You've you've been right there. Ball bounces one way or the other, and and you don't quite you know get over the hump in the World Series. But it seems so random. It seems like there's <laughs> there's just a you know like flip a coin sometimes. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's the thing about baseball where. I I think that you have to if if you don't have a process and you know believe in the people that are around you you're going to drive yourself mad because you can't figure it out you can run into a hot pitcher uh, you can see uh, you can run into you know Rendon hit uh, Clayton Kershaw slider that's three inches above above the ground off the ground for a homer 
And it just, that's, that's the thing. That's the great thing about baseball, but it isn't one of those things where the best team, you roll them out there and the probability of you winning it just, cause yeah, you get that hot pitcher, yeah. um, guy, it's a three run homer, then that could be the difference in the game. Hmm. And then you play, if you play 162, then, then the best team wins out, right? Like over time, that's how you determine who's a better team. Right over over time, over 162 games, that's going to be determined. But then you go into the first round, you play three out of five. I, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand <laughs> right. why why that why that's the case. And then four out of seven seems like every round should be four out of seven. But I don't. That, know. I, I feel the same way. And I'll tell you right now, it's it's not 16 or 82, but this year uh, it's going to be interesting to see once we get ramped up and and hopefully I'm still hopeful we still do have baseball. Um, but it's going to be more of uh, a sprint than we've ever, you know, been yeah. around. So, you know, when you're talking 80, 90, 100 games, it's certainly uh, different than the 162 that, that we're used to. So I might have to pick your guys' brains on the, uh, the urgency <laughs> of, of a shortened season. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to be watching you probably because, well, I know I will. Um, we're out of the playoffs already. So if the NBA comes back, uh, you know, our team is pretty much done. I think uh, yeah, baseball would be the first to start, right? And then football. Well, I guess I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. The NBA playoffs could start before anything. We don't know anything. We don't know nothing. We don't know. Let's all we could all say that together. We don't know nothing right yeah. now. You're <laughs> right. Wait yeah. see. Yeah. I don't know. I know people would love to tell. I sure miss watching. Uh, I miss sports. I know I, I speak for everybody. I just, I just miss having a game on. You know, I miss c- coming home and looking forward to whatever game it is, whether an NBA playoff game or Dodger game or, or you know, just it's just weird without sports. And uh, it, I sure appreciate uh, Dave you coming on and, and sharing your uh, your thoughts and your your vision about what it's like to be a coach in baseball. It's it's, it's awesome stuff. Well, I appreciate you guys. This is good, Pete. This was this was good, Steve. It's it's fun, man. It's fun to it's fun. To, I'm glad you got to put us back in the baseball mind because it's kind of that time of year, you know, and yes, all. It is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun to put us back in it. Well, we'll figure it out someday. We'll, we'll get this thing worked out, guys. <laughs> all right, guys. Take care. Thank you. All awesome right. stuff. Thanks, Dave. All right. See you guys. See ya. All right. Thanks to Pete, and thanks to Dave, and thanks to Steve Kerr. Don't forget to go check out the Warriors Community Foundation and the Seahawks Charitable Foundation. And if you want to help World Central Kitchen, go to theringer.com slash WCK. And if you want to go check out Pete's website, it's competecreate.net backslash Warriors Edge. If you want to talk about and if you want to take that course that we discussed earlier, uh, Flying Coach will return next week. See you then.